We're in Ezekiel 19 tonight. I was mostly going to focus in on verses 1 through 9, which is a lamentation for the kings, hence lament for Israel's leadership. Actually, I think what I'll take is lament for Israel's... um, Perhaps I'd retitle it to God laments over his people because from verse 10 to 14, we move from the kings to the, to the, to the people. So this is a general lamentation that God has over, over his people. Let me begin at verse 1. Hear God's holy word. As for you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What was your mother, a lioness among lions? She lay down among her young lions. She reared her cubs. When she brought up one of her cubs, he became a lion. He learned to tear his prey. He devoured men. The nations heard about him. He was captured in their pit. They brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When she saw as she waited that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs, made him a young lion. He walked about among the young lions. He became a young lion. He learned to tear his prey. He devoured men. He destroyed their fortified towers and laid waste their cities, and the land in its fullness were appalled because of the sound of his roaring. Their nations set against him, and on every side from their provinces they spread their net over him. He was captured in their pit. They put him in a cage with hooks. They brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in hunting nets so that his voice would be heard no more on the mountains of Israel." Your mother was like the vine in a vineyard, planted by the waters. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant waters. It had strong branches, fit for scepters of rulers. Its height was raised above the clouds, so that it was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But it was plucked up in fury. It was cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. Its strong branch was torn off, so that it withered. The fire consumed it. And now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land, and fire has gone out from its branch. It has consumed its shoot and branch and fruit, so that there is not in it a strong branch, a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give me sufficient insight to rightly un pack or divide this word, Lord, especially in light of the, the gravity of the subject, even the tone of it. I pray for all of us that we would be silent under your word, that we would receive these words of warnings that you have for your people uh, concerning your people Israel when they live like Gentiles, when they live in their sins and they stiffen their necks and refuse to repent. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. May we who have ears to hear, let us hear what you say to the church as Christ. Amen. I think it's helpful. This is a long book, and we are, um, we're less than halfway through the book. Uh, chapter 19 made some progress here. I think it's helpful at the... At the um, at the risk of appearing redundant to remind us of the particular context of the book of uh, Ezekiel, uh, what's going on uh, historically here. Um, The book of Ezekiel records the Babylonian captivity of God's people. 
And so when we come to this chapter, uh, we would do well to remember the sad fact of the captivity of God's people. In the Bible, which is a book of redemptive history, there are two great captivities that God places there. The, the larger of the captivities, which is the Egyptian captivity, 400 years the people of God were subjugated to Egypt. And then there's the lesser captivity, which is the Babylonian captivity. And the people of God are subjugated under Gentile rule for 70 years. There's also another captivity that we see Israel, specifically Israel, the northern kingdom. They go off, they go off earlier uh, to Assyrian captivity. But for our purposes, think the two, the larger and the, the, the smaller uh, captivities, one to Egypt and then the other to Babylon. And we're looking at the, the Babylonian captivity of God's people. Now, we see here a lamentation taken up for the princes of Israel and then, then the mother dealing with Israel. Sometimes the word Israel is, is taken to denote the, the, the entire people of God and um, and not in specifically in reference to uh, the northern kingdoms. You have the, the northern kingdoms after the split with Rehoboam. You have ten kingdoms go to the north. Samaria is the capital there. That's specifically Israel. And then the two southern kingdoms uh, in Judah. That's specifically Judah. Here it says Israel. It's not referring to the northern kingdom specifically. It's, it's a word for um, God's people. And so, but sometimes, it, depending on the context, it will indicate um, whether it's used in the entirety, meaning all of the people of God, or whether specifically it's referring to um, to the northern kingdoms. And what's going on here with the Babylonian captivity is God is taking away Judah um, specifically into captivity in three waves to Babylon. They're going to come back in three successive waves. But they're being chastised by God for their sins. I prayed it or said it. The people of God are living like Gentiles. They're living like pagans. They're living in their sin. They won't repent. And they're living unholy lives. It's, there's nothing new under the sun, King Solomon says. It's very commonplace to hear, even in today's day, uh, someone will say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm just a, a, a Bibleless Christian, a prayerless Christian, a churchless Christian, and a sinful Christian. If, if words mean anything, if the Bible means anything... It's not a Christian. It's, you may say you're a Christian, but to live like a heathen and call yourself a Christian is to go off into the Babylonian captivity. So God threatens his people when they live like not his people. And you think, well, is, is that still a, a principle that God does in the New Testament? Yes. Read the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. The risen Lord Jesus Christ says to this church, I have this against you, that against you, that against you. And if you don't repent... I'm going to remove my lampstand, which is to, take, to say to take my Holy Spirit away from the church. There's a place in Peter's epistle, I forget which one, first or second epistle, where the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Peter, judgment begins with the household of God first. It comes around to the Gentile, but that's what we have here. It's to the Jew first, to the Gentile. Uh, Romans 1, Romans chapter 2, salvation, the gospel comes to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. But then punishment, likewise, comes to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. We have here punishment or discipline coming to the household of God first, which is, I want to say, the first 24 chapters, 28 chapters. It's Israel, 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 or Judah, Judah, Judah. And then when we conclude that entire section of God speaking to his people, then it gets around to the Gentile nations. So th this principle is, is still existent right now. So 
when we look at the sad state of the Christian church in modern times, I'm always fearful because the word of Christ is, I'm going to take my, I'm going to take my lampstand from you. Um, you can go to churches even today where they will, they'll stand up in a pulpit and they will say things which are utterly obnoxious to the word of God, yet they're going to call themselves a church. Jesus says again in the book of Revelation, um, beware, take note, repent. I'm going to come with a sword in my mouth. You have a name that you live, but you're dead. And so what's going on here, two things with the Babylonian captivity are two classes within Israel. There are those people within Israel, Judah, who say they believe, but they're unbelievers. They get judgment. There is no condemnation for a believer. If you are a real believer in Christ Jesus, here in this context, with forward-looking faith, if you're a real believer, you do not get condemnation, no judgment. It's all, all of our sins are reckoned to the account of Christ. But there are unbelievers here. There's Judas here. There's Lot's wife here. And I'm using her as a figure for sin. So there are unbelievers who say they're believers. They get justice. They get condemnation. They get justice. So when God brings them off to Babylon and God brings the war against Jerusalem and they're killed in it, that is punishment. That's judicial. But then there's another class of people within the household of faith. Those are true believers in forward-looking faith to Christ, but they're sinning. They don't get justice or judgment. They get discipline or chastisement. It looks the same. You're both going off into captivity, but God's purposes are different regarding the particular recipient. So to the unbeliever who professes to believe, but he's an unbeliever, he gets justice, judgment. But to the person who's a believer, who's living like an unbeliever, he gets discipline. Read the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Read our uh, confession of faith, chapter 5. Paragraph 5, God's providence towards the believer. And then chapter 5, paragraph 6, God's providence towards the unbeliever. Sometimes it looks exactly the same, but God's purposes are, are different depending upon the entity receiving his government, if that makes any kind of sense. So when we look at the Babylonian captivity, and this has been the challenge for me in preaching this book, there's lots of judgment in this book. So I mentioned this last week. You cannot, I just challenge you. If you're going to try to be faithful to the Bible, how do you not preach passages or teach passages that preach and teach judgment that are clear as a bell? You don't need to go to seminary to go, well, this is judgment. This is a judgment poem here. And to make this say something other than it says, I think is in, infidelity to God's word. But with that said, God has many, many, many chapters here concerning Babylonian captivity and essentially 25 plus chapters of warnings. You're going, you're going, you're going, and here's why you're going. And you would think, well, why repeat and repeat it again? Why do you need to do this? Why not just say you're going off to the Babylonian captivity, you're living like a sin sinner, stop, why not? Well, when we were little children, our mothers and fathers threatened and warned, war, warned us ad nauseum. I know there are some parents that spoke once and then the hammer came down. If that's you, you're a weird parent. Um, you're a, I, I hesitate to say bad parent because God doesn't do that, but, but I won't say bad parent. Most of our parents had to say, no, stop, 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 stop. And the reason you have to repeat and repeat and repeat is because the child doesn't listen. And so when you come here, you say, well, why does God have so many chapters of this? Because the people won't listen. And in, 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 in the earlier chapter, chapter 18, he says, he says specifically, why won't you repent? Why won't you turn and live? Repent and live. 
He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So God's repetition is a token, I would argue, of his mercy. It's a kindness. And it's also an expression of the carnality of God's people and the stubbornness of God's people. You know the, you know the phrase stiff-necked? My people are stiff-necked. This, this, this is stiff-necked. God says your children are like lions. You're, this isn't a good thing to be called a young lion. They're running around living like Gentiles, tearing everyone to bits. We're not supposed to be lions. We're supposed to be lambs. Jesus Christ, the figure is he's the lamb of God. We've been baptized by the Holy Spirit under the figure of not a lion, or, but under the figure of a dove. Christians are supposed to be lamb-like and dove-like. And here are these two figures for two kings, kings of Judah, they're lions. They're tearing everybody to bits. They're living contrary to the image of God in Christ. So it's not a good thing. And, and, and they're, they're living radically different uh, than God would have them live. But the Babylonian captivity is repeated and repeated and repeated in the Bible. And the Bible has whole books that are devoted to the history of the Babylonian captivity. In other words, God wants us to remember this. Sometimes people say, well, you never want to remember the bad things that happened to you. You just want to forget it and move on. Maybe yes, in a Philippians chapter 3 sense, where Paul says, I forget the things that were behind me and I chase the things ahead. I understand that. But if you read the Pauline epistles, and he either wrote 13 or 14 of the epistles, he says regularly, I persecuted the church. So he didn't forget his past sins. He knows that judicially they're done away with. And he's not flagellating himself for past sins, but he benefits from his past sins. He benefits where he came from. He remembers the pig pen. He remembers what it was like to live as an unbeliever. And God has Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, the book of Lamentations, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, the entire, all of those books I just listed are dedicated to the Babylonian captivity. God says, I want you to remember why I took you off into the Babylonian captivity. I want you to remember. You were living like an unbeliever and I took you away. You wouldn't obey my word. I took you away. And when he took them away, it wasn't pleasant. I know sometimes we're thinking gas is about $100 a gallon right now and 60 bucks for a loaf of, uh, of bread. And we think it couldn't get any worse. Oh, beloved, could it not get worse for the Christian church right now in America? Could, could it get worse? Could, is it possible? Read history. Read history. Read, read the history of World War II. Read history. Re- read Bible history. How is he taking his people out of the promised land? How is he taking them off to Babylon with a hook in their nose? The Babylonians would stick a hook in your nose or hook in your lips, and they would lead you like an ox. Off you go. You can take a man that weighs 150 pounds and move an ox that weighs 1,000 pounds. How? Stick a hook in its nose or its lip. And wherever you yank on that hook, on that ox's nose, that 1,000-pound animal is going to follow that 150-pound man. God's taken them off to captivity with a hook in their nose. And, and, and this is here. Isn't there a psalm? You remember Don McLean? Don McLean, probably not a Christian. Remember Bye Bye Miss America? I don't know, I'm dating that. I'm dating myself. All the young people are looking at me. Who are you talking about? Pastor John. Don McLean. Go home to, tonight. You could do it because it's biblical. You go to YouTube, mash in Don McLean, mash in um, Psalm 137. I, 137. We lay down and wept and wept. 
Babylon. Remember? God writes one entire hymn that he puts in the hymnal psalter of the Bible. He wants God's people to sing Psalm 137 about the Babylonian captivity. If you, the Babylonian captivity, Don McLean song, is minor key. God wants us to realize what a horrible, sad thing it is to be taken from the, the promised land flowing with milk and honey to go off and live with the Gentiles. So, beloved, I am always afraid for America. Do I think America is a Christian nation? I kind of think America is somewhat a post-Christian nation and maybe even a neo-pagan nation, but I'm afraid for that because we'll be singing, not that America is Israel, we're not, but the church is the Israel of God and these were the Israel of God and they went off into Babylonian captivity. So this is very important. So this chapter is about this particular chapter. It, it says, what, three or four times? Lamentation. This is a lamentation. This is a minor key. What's a dirge? Is a dirge like a death song? Uh, yeah, this is a dirge. Th- this is a song that you sing at the, de- at the, the death of a mother or a father, the death of your son, the death of your, your daughter. God forbid. But this is a, this is a funeral song. And God places this here. But the entire book of Ezekiel is a lamentation. And within the book are these little calls. Repent and live. Repent and live. I will restore. But, but it, we can't get away from that major theme. Now, there are three classes of people that God speaks to in chapter 19. He speaks to in verse 1. I'm putting them under these, these heads. He speaks to the first class of person, which is the prophet. He speaks to, to, to Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel, I have a word for you. And then in verses 1 through 9, he speaks to another class of people. Specifically, I would say Israel as the mother lion. But he speaks to the two lions. The two lion cubs that have become young lions. Those are kings. And they be, they're vicious kings. And so the first king is taken away by Necho, uh, the king of Egypt. And the second king gets taken away by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So he speaks to Ezekiel, the prophet. He speaks to the wicked kings. And then in 10 to 14, he speaks to the wicked people. And he, this is a poetic... Uh, you, you've, you've, you've heard this, depending upon the churches that you're used to going to. Some churches say... Um, we believe the Bible is the literal word of God. I, I believe the Bible is the literal word of God as, as well. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Second Timothy three fourteen through 17. I believe that. But we don't mean like this. When the Bible speaks metaphorically, we don't take a metaphor literally, if that makes any sense. In other words, think of it this way. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, I think, Jesus Christ has a sword coming out of his mouth. Do you remember that in the book of Revelation? Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. Is the, does the risen Lord Jesus Christ walk around with a real sword hanging out of his mouth? I would argue no. What's the sword? It's a symbol. And in Psalm 2, and he's going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. This symbolizes the justice and even the, justice, the just retribution against those who hate Christ and hate Christ's people. All that to say this. This is symbolical language. What we're looking at here is metaphorical language. He's not saying, hi, I want to talk to Simba the tiger. He's not talking to a real tiger or a real lion. He's using, I know know 
it's so simple that it prob- I probably shouldn't even explain it, but we, we live in strange times. The lion is, is a figure, is a symbol for a human being. The vine is not a real vine, a wooden vine. It's a symbol for human beings. And both touch on Israel, specifically Judah. So he talks to two kings in Judah, and then he talks to the people of Judah. The two kings are not lamb-like or dove-like, they're lion-like. And then he, he turns to his people and he says, you're supposed to be bearing fruits of holiness. And what instead are they bearing? They're fruitless. They're fruitless. So again, it's symbolic language, and I, I, but it's the three classes of people. He says, Ezekiel, I have a word for you. Two kings, I have a word for you too. People, I have a word for you too. And the word that he gives is, as we, we've mentioned, a lamentation. But let's just first look at God's word to his man, Ezekiel. He says, as for you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. The as for you is Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, he's the watchman on the tower. He says to his man, I have a word for you. I'm going to put a word in your mouth, and I want you to give this particular word to my particular people. Let's look at what, and we all know this, but it's, it's worth repeating. Let's look at what Ezekiel is. What's Ezekiel? Ezekiel's one is a Jew. He's a believing Jew. But in, ad, in addition, what's his function here? What's Ezekiel's function? Ezekiel is a prophet. What do prophets do? Prophets administer God's word. They're God's representative. They're God's representative to speak a word to man. A priest is also God's representative, but they represent the people of God back to God. So the prophet takes God's word. He speaks to God's people. The priest takes the sin and the prayers of God's people, and he speaks back to God. But he's a prophet. And prophets reveal the will of God to God's people for their salvation. He does it with two two ways of using the word. He preaches the law of God, which in this instance shows us the danger of our sin, and then he preaches the gospel of God, which shows us the relief of our sin in the person of Christ Jesus. But here in this lamentation, we're, we're seeing God tell his man, I want you to preach to them my warning, my lamentation over their law breaking. This is the moral governor through his representative, his preacher, telling his moral creatures, human beings, that they are lawbreakers. They have broken the law of God. And he, he is calling on this man to, um, to speak to the people of God. So prophets are, what was it, the, um, the Scottish, there was a Scottish guy. Oh, he, he wrote during the killing times. Um, Fairs, fair sunshine. If there's a book put out by the banner of truth. Fair Sunshine or something like that. Jock Purvis, Purvis. If you can get it, read it. And there was another minister at that same time called uh, Rabbi Duncan. And Rabbi Duncan said, I'm just a talker. That's what he referred to himself. I'm just a talker. A prophet is just a talker. But he's God's talker. He doesn't come with his own words. He comes with the, the word of the Lord. And so how does the prophet often start his speech or his preaching to the people of God. He says, thus saith the what? Thus saith the Lord. So when the prophet comes, he's, he is required by God to only say that which God gives him to say. Only say that which God gives him to say and not to add or take away from it. 
So when God says, I have a pleasant word from me to my people, a word of comfort. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Isaiah, is it in the 40s? Comfort, comfort ye my people. Thus says your Lord. You know, I would much rather someone say, here's John 3.16, John. Oh, I love that. Come, believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. No condemnation, eternal life. Come, 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 come. Jesus is God's love to us. Come. And I'm required to give that. But when God says, the wages of sin is death. Judgment begins with the household of God first. Why will you repent and die? That's a word of warning. God's man, to be faithful to God, has to give the word of comfort and he has to give the word of warning. And the church is to respond variously to the word of God as delivered by the man of God. So if God threatens sin, how should the man has to be faithful to deliver it and then we have to be faithful to receive it? How, could, how should we receive faithful threats against sin? We should tremble at it. We should believe it. We shouldn't try to... Many, many, many years ago, this happens all the time. It hasn't happened recently, but many years ago, I knew there was a woman married to a person who they wanted their husband to really, 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 really believe in Jesus. The guy didn't. But when I would preach the law and the gospel, they would try to distract their husband. I would watch the woman do it. No, don't get convicted, buttercup. It's not you. Don't, don't. And I would literally want to get out of the pulpit and say, you silly woman. You want this guy to be converted, but you're trying him to him not get convicted. You don't want his feelings to be hurt. He's not going to be converted unless his feelings are hurt. Stop it, woman. But I knew what she was doing. She didn't want him to be convicted. She didn't want him to be hurt. No, if you're going to be faithful to the threats and the warnings of God's word, you've got to take it. I've got to give it, but you got to t- we've got to take it. And so here he's given a word. You remember who was it? Old Eli? God came to Samuel. Oh, first or second Samuel. I forget which. God comes to Samuel. He's going to reveal himself to Samuel. And the word, he says, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel goes running. And, and the Lord speaks to Samuel. And you remember old Eli says to Samuel, you tell me what God said to you. You remember this? You tell me what God said to you. And even if God says to you something hard, even if it's hard against me, you tell me. And what did God tell Samuel? I'm going to kill Eli's two sons because they're wicked. And what did Eli say? Tell me what God said. I want you to tell me. If it's hard, I want to hear it. If it's easy and pleasant, I want to hear it. And what did Samuel say? He said, he's going to kill your sons. And what did, what, did, what did Eli say? That's from God. That's from God. Did he not grieve over the death of his sons? But he said, that's a word from God. So the prophet has a responsibility to, the pe- to God, but then to the people. I've got to tell you this. It's not my word, but we as the people of God, and people of God do this all the time. I'm only going to hear what I want to hear. Then you're going off to the Babylonian captivity. We have to hear all of God's word. It's all true. We rejoice at the promises and the blessings and we tremble at the threatenings and the warnings. In addition to the prophets preaching, I'm going to argue this from the life of the prophets. Many times I think Isaiah had to go around naked and again, a picture of going off into to captivity and he's having solidarity with the people of God. The preacher, the prophet has to be faithful to the word 
But then his life has to reflect the doctrine that he preaches. Who wants to... You remember the guy many years ago? I won't even mention his name. He went with a woman of the night and then a couple of women of the night and then he got caught and then he cried in the pulpit. This man was phenomenally phenomenally gifted. He could preach and he could sing. He could play the piano. And then he, he wept and wept and wept and wept because he got caught. I would argue living a life that is radically different than the gospel you preach and the law you preach hurts your ministry to God's people. You see what I'm saying? We're to preach a holy law, we're to preach a holy gospel, and the minister, the prophet, is to live a commensurate life that he he shows the people that he personally believes what he preaches. That's the prophet. He is required to give a word of God to the people of God, and so he, he does. I've mentioned the, rece- the reception. We're to receive it as the very word of God. God most often doesn't speak directly to the people. Most often he speaks through the prophet or through the preacher of the word. And in this case, he's called to give a lamentation. He says, I want you to take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. A lamentation is an expression of grief. As we said, it's like a funeral song for the death of someone that you love. And oftentimes, it's an expression not of, um, oh, it's not blasé. It's not something, well, I'm kind of sad. They didn't, they didn't cook my pizza the way that I like my pizza. Boy, I'm a little sad about that. No, this is, um, lamentation is often expressed both in one's countenance, verbally, even physically, there's weeping, but it's not just boo-hoo-hoo. There's a sobbing to it. Um, and there's a real, it's like, again, I can't, I liken it to the death of someone that you really, really, really love. When I officiated at the, the funeral of my mother in October, I've never preached a funeral like that in my life, ever. I barely could get through preaching the funeral of my mother. The only harder funerals I would have would be my wife or my children or my grandchildren. Before preaching my mother's funerals, I've preached lots of funerals. Nothing nothing made me shake with grief like watching my mother die and then preaching her funeral. It's like that. And so you have this weeping. Oftentimes in the Bible, lamentation is expressed by, um, by sackcloth and ashes, weeping and wailing, that kind of thing. And that's what God says to, to Ezekiel. I want you to take this up. I want you to think of this. Our brother said this in Sunday school. This is not some kind of intellectual exercise. Go, check. God is not this disinterested. And I know it's perplexing for us because we're Calvinist and Reformed and we sometimes get nervous about the passions of God. And we say, well, Calvin said God didn't have any passions. Go back and read that again. He's using passions in a particular kind of a way. This is God's lamentation. This is God weeping over his people. Well, I'm a Calvinist. I don't believe that he does. Well, then you need to read again. I'm a Calvinist too. This is God weeping over his people. Well, that doesn't make sense because he's sovereign. Then read it again. This is what he's doing. He's weeping over the sin of his people. He's weeping that they're in the Babylonian captivity. Well, we think that doesn't make sense. He's the one that brought them into the Babylonian captivity. I realize that the sovereignty of God is much bigger than our minds can take. 
did the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God come in the flesh, govern the sacking of Jerusalem and the, and the destruction of the, Roman te- uh, of the Jerusalem temple by the Roman commander Titus? Did Jesus govern that? Yes. What did Jesus do over Jerusalem? What is it, the book of Luke, chapter 24? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He did what over Jerusalem? He wept over Jerusalem. I am a high Calvinist. I love election. I love predestination. But don't... I, I, I do get animated when it's like a, like a math class. This is not a math class. God says he loves his people. He weeps over the sins of his people. He weeps at the destruction of Jerusalem. He weeps at the destruction of Babylon. That's our God. And God says to his, his man, I want you to weep too. He says to Joel, I want you to weep. He says to Micah, I want you to weep. Why? Because Ezekiel is one of the people. Jeremiah is one of the people. Daniel, one of the people. He's in it. There's a solidarity. This is why angels can't preach the law of the gospel. They can't preach the gospel because they have no part in it. Only saved sinners can preach the gospel because they taste and know God in Christ. And so God says to his man, I want you to weep and wail. He says to Isaiah, I want you to preach naked. Why? Because I'm taking my people away naked. Naked, naked. Well, would God want his man to be a man of sorrows acquainted with much grief when he's preaching this? Yes, he would. So he says, says to Ezekiel, preach this. And I want you to preach it. I want you to preach and weep over the sins of the people. This is not some, oh, you all here, and boy, is it going to be sad. It's all the people that, that Ezekiel loves. It's your mother, your father, your grandmother, your son, your daughter. We're all going off. I had a, comment, I had a discussion the other day with a person about slavery, which I find obnoxious. But there are th- the Bible does in the Old Testament governs it for whipping in war or poverty and those kind of things. And the person made a comment. And I said, you know, I'm glad it's historical and we don't really argue. It's theoretical and I shouldn't even have the conversation. I said, it's easy for you to say because you're thinking you're the guy drinking the mint julep and you're not the guy being bought and sold. If you're the guy being bought and sold, you're going to come to this radically different. If your kids are bought and sold, you're coming to it radically different. If you think you're doing the buying and selling... You sit back with a mint julep and think everything's well. This guy's not having a mint julep. You're going. Your kids are going. Your mom's going. And I want you to lament. And, and, and that's what's going on. And he laments. I mentioned the kings. I preached too, preach too much about Ezekiel and the prophet's calling. But he says, I want you to lament. And what you have here is um, you have a mother lion and she has a couple of cubs and she turns two of her cubs into young lions. And these two young lions referred to um, two kings in Judah specifically. I think the book, oh boy, I used to know it. Kings, the book of Kings. There are 19 specific kings of Israel. You remember there are four kings before the kingdoms are divided. You have Saul as the first king. Then you have David as the second king. Then you have Solomon as the third king. Is it Rehoboam is the fourth king and then the kingdoms are split? So you have four kings before the kingdoms are divided. Then you have the divided king kingdom. There are 19 specific kings of Israel listed. Listen to this. Every king of Israel, specific king of Israel, Israel, the, the northern kingdom, they're all evil. Every last one of them does evil. 
And I want to say there are 21 kings, specific kings listed for Judah. Only five of them do good. (laughs) The rest of them are evil. And from what line do the kings of Judah come from? David. Every parent, if we could, we would give faith to our kids. Every parent or grandparent, if we could, we would give faith to our grandchildren. It doesn't work that way. God's the one that distributes it. So if we look at King David's line, the whole pack of them, with the exception of five people, they're all wicked. They're all lions. And there are four men in particular, the kings of Judah, that live about the time of the Babylonian captivity. They all get taken off. I think he's talking about two particular kings, um, but he, he's speaking against them. I, I do want us to say this. This is why I read, we read from the secondary standard. I was primarily in the beginning of my sermon study, we're going to take it against the kings, um, and then came a different way. Everybody wants to be the boss before you're the boss. I watched my dad go from being poor uh, to being rich, and then I watched him die poor. <laughs> he lost all his money in two years. He got a disease and he died. And, and during that time, he lost all of his money. He died penniless. He went from being poor to being a millionaire and dying a pauper within 18 months. And I can remember some of the ladies in my dad's office would say, yeah, it must be nice to drive a Mercedes. And they would want to be rich like this guy. But since I was the kid that was raised in my dad's house, he worked like 80 hours a week and put himself in the rubber room, literally put himself in the rubber room. You don't want to pay the cost to be the boss. You, you don't want to pay the cost to be the leader. And so with leadership comes great responsibility before the Lord, which is why we read the secondary standards. These kings of Judah, they're responsible to the Lord to put down the evildoer, to promote those who do good. These kings in Judah are responsible to the Lord to protect the people of God so that they would live holy and peaceable lives. And that's what they were required before God to do. So it's not, we don't live in a theocracy right now. America is not the new Israel. Um, the president is not, a, is not a, a pastor per se, though we pray. We always, I always pray for, for me to put a Christian or at least subdue whoever he puts up there. All leaders... But in this context, specifically, this is a theocracy. Church and state are one. This guy is responsible for the holy life of God's people and to promote it and to put down evil. And instead, what's the guy doing? What are these these two kings doing? They are not promoting good and they are promoting evil. And God says to them, what, essentially? He said, you're not lamb-like, you're not dove-like, you're not holy, you're like a lion. You're living like a heathen and you're tearing and you're devouring and I'm going to do what to you? I'm going to send for two Gentile pagans, Necho in Egypt, um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and they're going to stick a hook in your nose and they're going to take you away. And that's God's, I would argue against these guys, unbelievers, that's their punishment. So rather than thinking, oh boy, I wish I was the king. It's easy to criticize the president Um, It's easy to criticize this president. It was easy to criticize the last one and the last one. And if we have a next one, the next one. Rather than criticizing them, it's always a better course, I think. I've read this in the Bible, that we should pray for them. None of us have a hot clue how hard it is to, to lead that magnitude of a people. But these people, with great responsibility, comes great culpability. And they failed in it. 
and God will bring his judgment against them for it. So I mentioned, I mentioned the particular uh, kings. 2 Kings 23. Jehoaz was 23 years old. He's the fellow that gets taken off into Egypt. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim. This is 2 Kings 23. The son of Josiah king in place of Josiah. His father changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoiakim. Oh, I'm butchering his name. He brought him to Egypt and he died there. And then Ezekiel 19 is when they put that fellow in a cage with hooks and so on. That's uh, 2 Kings 24. Um, that is taking away Jehoiakim. In, in both of these guys, names that are butchering, they're both sons of a godly king. Is it Josiah? I think it's Josiah. So godly king Josiah, one of the five godly kings of Judah, has two, two scallywags for sons. So you can have like an evil son, Manasseh, having, is it Hezekiah? I forget which one. You'll have a godly, uh, uh, an ungodly dad having a godly boy. Well, you'll have a godly dad having a wicked son. In this case, you have a godly dad, Josiah, and he has two scallywags for sons. And both of the sons respectively get taken off. And what we learn by that is both boys do not learn by watching God's punishment against their brother. And then we have the lamentation, which I'll be shorter, also in symbolic language. So God says you're going off to... Um, you're going off to captivity and you're going to die there. That's judgment. That's condemnation. Does God still do this? Um, does God still retain the right to judge even with death when those who bear his name and they have responsibility to guard and shepherd his people and instead they devour his people, does God still retain the right to take away that person's life? Yes. Read Ezekiel chapter 34. Um, I always cringe at, say, a minister that's living really like a pagan. I always cringe. God retains the right to take away their life, and he did here. And then I'll be quicker with the figure of Israel. It's fairly, um, I would say, simple to understand. He turns away from the, the leaders, and he turns to those who are being led by the leaders. And this is important. Not, as it, not only does everybody want to be the boss, everybody loves, loves to judge the boss. And so they look at the king and they say, well, he's a scallywag. I'm glad we're not a scallywag like the king or like the prince. But guess what, beloved? Having the ability to find sin or even unbelief in our leader doesn't free us from our responsibility to believe and live holy. In other words, if the king is an unbeliever, he's going to be judged. But that doesn't get the unbelieving people off the hook. So look at our nation. You could say, if you didn't like the last guy... You could say, look at the last guy. He was awful. Maybe he was. I have a person in my family that said to me, I'm morally offended at the last guy. And I said, no, you're not. Because you did the sins of the last guy and I did the sins of the last guy. We're not morally offended. We're the exact same as the last guy you didn't like. What about this guy? We could say, he has great sins. We have great sins. And so God says to the leader, you're going to be judged. He says to the wicked people, you're going to be judged. You're going to be judged. Leader, people. And when he says, I looked at you and I didn't find you to be fruitful, but I, I found you to be a dry, a dry branch, and then someone snapped you off, threw you to the ground, and threw you in the fire. Beloved, is that Old Testament language or does that, is that language found in the New Testament? 
Is it found in the New Testament? That language. I looked for holy fruits. You are my holy people. You say you love me. You say you produce fruits of the Holy Spirit. I looked for those fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kind, kindness, self-control. And all I found was sexual immorality, thievery, blasphemy, idolatry. But I'm going to break you off and I'm going to throw you in the fire. Is that Old Testament only or is it in the New Testament? Read Luke chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the vine. If you're attached to me, you're going to produce fruit. But if you do not bear fruit in Christ Jesus, what does he say? Jesus says, I'm going to snap you off and throw you in the fire. You're not losing your salvation. You never had it. So Jesus, Jesus says in John 15, 16, I saved you that you would bear fruit. So if a person says, oh, I'm a believer, but there's no fruits of holiness. The only thing that we find is thorns and thistles. The book of Hebrews, New Testament, chapter 6 says, if you do not produce fruits of holiness. See, this is why this, this message is so important for the church. I probably, as a minister, I don't go two weeks where I don't hear, not specifically the congregation, but family of the congregation, friends of the congregation, people who say, oh yeah, yeah, they're Christians, they're living with their girlfriend, they're, they're turning themselves into boys and they're really girls, or they cuss like a blue streak, they do drugs all the time, they live like pagans. No, but Buttercup is a really a Christian. How, how, how is this possible? Jesus comes looking for fruits of holiness. But, but, but my family doesn't have to have fruits of holiness. Oh, yes, they do. Yes, they do. If we do not bear fruits of holiness, it shows that we're not attached. And God says to the people of God, I looked for you to be different than the Gentiles. You're just like the Gentiles. And the only thing that's going to happen if we don't bear fruits of holiness, as we say we're attached to Jesus Christ, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, you're going to be snapped off and thrown in the fire. That's a real, that's a real thing. I'm not a legalist, but I'm not an antinomian either. I find the other is antinomianism. When someone says your sanctification is look at your justification, and that's all they do, I think they're off base. I think they're utterly off base. Everything is passive. They're utterly passive in their Christian life. And I'm speaking against a few modern guys, and they're wrong. When you look at these guys, and it's just, I never want to look at the law, I never want to see if I'm producing fruits of holiness, it's just Jesus paid it all, supposedly paid it all. Where's the holiness? And then you look at these teachers, they're dumping their wife and they're living with their girlfriend. You can set your watch by it. And that's, that's this. God says, take up a lamentation for the, for the kings. Take up a lamentation for the people. If the kings are faithless, if all of the people are faithless, what's their only hope? If the kings are faithless, and God looks, and there's no one who seeks God, no one who does good, no one who is righteousness, no, not one. He doesn't see anyone. What hope is there? He has to send his son. He has to send the faithful king. He has to send the faithful son. He has to send the faithful shepherd. Otherwise, we're lost. Our hope is not in kings. Our hope is not in the visible church. Our hope is in the Christ of the church. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.